you've heard of it, but but I got to tell you, you know, when when you're the CEO of a company whose revenues go down by 95% in one month, you know, like they did in in, in the month of March, you know, I, I listen to this guy, right? Because it reminds me of what we went through in 2008. And Ed Bastian said, and I wrote these 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 quotes down. He said, "This is a it's a blessing, not a burden, today to be a leader." He said, "It's an amazing time and an amazing chapter in our lives." He said, "What an honor and privilege it is to be managing in a time like this." I think we need more than just welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers. Really, as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it, and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Part two in our interview with Walt Rakowicz. If you haven't heard about his book Transfluence, you need to go on Amazon and pre-order your Kindle copy, and and go back and listen to part one of this interview. Well, there's so many questions I have for you, but I think I think what might be kind of fun is is doing it a different direction. Of, you know, obviously, you know, you've been in the press, and I've watched your Nayreet interviews on the internet and all these kind of things. What's a question that you wish people asked you more? <laughs> that's interesting. Well, you know, that's 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 really a really good question. I mean, I I I think there is I I think there is one part of the. Can I talk about one part of the book that was really meaningful to me? One part of the book that was meaning to, meaningful to me was a conversation that I had with a mentor, uh, who, a person who became a mentor,、um, John Mack, who was the CEO of Morgan Stanley. And、uh, John, you know, remember 2008, Jess? You, I'm sure you remember. I mean, Goldman Sachs is quote unquote going bankrupt. Prologis is going bankrupt. Morgan Stanley is going bankrupt, right? And we're reading about TARP in the newspapers, and we're reading about the Fed and the Treasury Secretary jamming banks together, right? And so I have a good friend of mine who's an investment banker at Morgan Stanley, and he calls me up. He said, "Walt," and this was not too long after we were in the headlines, as you know, Prologis is is going down. And he said, "Do you want to? Would you want to talk to John Mack, who is you know, see our CEO?" And I said, "Oh, I'd love to talk to Mack." And and Mack was. Really revered in the investment banking business, people really loved him. For I mean, he was one of the few investment bankers that are known as great leaders, you know. And、uh, Jamie Dimon, I think, did set mold today, but you know, there were very few. And and I spent some time with him, and and I said, John, how are you getting through this? And he said, you know, Walt, I've been leading for a long time. I've been through a lot of ups and downs, and there are three words that start with H that I I just think are so powerful. And he said, I try to. Pattern my leadership after that. I go, what? What do you like? What do you mean? And he said, no, I'm. He said, I'm serious. He said, the best leaders are humble. They're honest. And this day and age, a banker needs to have a doggone sense of humor. And I laughed and I said, you're absolutely right. I I said, but you know, that's really really interesting. And because、uh, I was looking for Jess, I was looking for the elevator speech back then. You know, like who. Who are you? What values do you or do you, do you, do you have? And lots of people asking me lots of questions, and I was under a lot of pressure, and I, I, it really resonated with me. I start thinking, how do we how do we bring this to the management team? And, and the more I start thinking about it, that word humor. I'm not sure I was the most humorous person in the world, but I think what John was really describing was human humanness. You know, you have to be able to relate to people, right? And so every day I'd go to work and I'd be asking myself, was I humble in that meeting? How did I come across? Was I brutally honest in that meeting? You know, was I transparent with people? Did I treat people with a heart? 
humanness, right? And there were a lot of situations that that occurred where, you know, I, 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 I'd come away and say, well, I'd give myself a B there. But, you know, but I, yeah, that self-reflection was really, really important to me. And I think it became very important when we had to, we had to let go of 30% of our workforce. And I, I, I just realized that, you know, this isn't about being nice. You know, the things I talk about, the humility and the vulnerability, and all that, it's, not about, it's not about being nice. It's about the way that you act. But you still have to make tough decisions. And, you know, we, we had to lay off a third of our workforce. It was really a question of how did we handle that, right? And, and, and how, did the, how did the two-thirds of the people that were going to stick around continue to be prideful that they work for a company that cared, right, when you lay off a third of your workforce? And so there were all kinds of issues like that as to how I had to deal with humility, honesty, and, and heart within the organization. But it really became, you know, you asked me, you know, the, the question that, that I, I, I like to answer, and that is, I, I, I really think it became the basis for how I thought about leadership. It became the value string, at which I ended up calling a 3H core, that, that defined the way that I wanted to lead people. Yeah, I really like hearing that story. And I think one of the things you identify in the book is how many folks who, you know, Theranos or, or people involved in scandals had great values on a poster on the wall somewhere, you know? They just weren't actually living them, right? To me, what's fascinating about your story is the the feedback loop there. This idea of you spending the time afterwards for that self-reflection and grading yourself. You know, the, all the material around brain science and myelination and how experts become experts the fastest, it co- consistently cites feedback loops. And so I can only guess that like, by taking the time to to take a deep breath and rate yourself on that last time, your brain is thinking about this for the next meeting you go into of like, well, can I at least get a B plus or A minus yeah. next time, right? Do, do you have anything to say about that? I think, um, I think what is also important is to ask your direct reports. I mean, they won't tell you. Why should they, right? You know, I, I talk about in the book how Frank Blake, I, I interviewed Frank Blake, who was the CEO of Home Depot. And he, Frank talks about the inverted pyramid, which I love. And then, and then Frank says at the end of the day that you should, you should listen. You should go around and you should listen to your people, you know? He said, but don't, don't just ask them, like, you know, how are you doing? No. I mean, they're, what they're going to tell you, oh, great, great, Walt, I'm just doing great. And by the way, you're doing a great job or, you know, whatever it might be, right? That's what you, you want to hear and they want you to hear. I think you got to ask them in an endearing way, what can I do better, you know? What can we do better as a management team if you're going around, you know, one nice thing about Prologis is a global company. So we were we had operations in Europe, we had operations in Asia, we had operations, you know, all over the world. And I was always on an airplane. And you know, you talk to people in Europe, and they're they're a lot more blunt than the people in Asia. You know, people in Asia don't want to, you know, they don't want to tell you that. And so, getting out of them what you could do better is an exercise in Asia associated with sitting down having dinner and drinking some sake with them, you know, and then asking the question in Europe, you might ask it at seven o'clock in the morning. They'll tell you at seven fifteen. you know? So, you know, it just depends on where you are, but in recognizing how you're going to get that feedback that Frank Blake did at, at Home Depot is really critically important, you know, who your audience is. But I think it is really important to ask, you know, and not be in a shell. And the more you ask, the more you learn and the more and the less fear that you have of people telling you things that you could do better, the better you will be, you know? Yeah. You know, I guess this idea of like actually wanting to hear could mm. like, could be a, a fear triggering thing, right? Oh yeah. Uh, 
And, and so I guess the question for you on that is, I, I think about the, the concern like of underperformance or, or things like this that you brought up before. And I yeah. think about everything you just said. And in a way, there's almost like a way to lead with confidence. I feel like you've talked about of like, like the confidence to be humble, the confidence to get the true honesty instead of like protecting yourselves from potentially bad news or finding out that I haven't been getting the A plus I thought I was getting or the, can, yeah. can you talk about the like, it makes me think about all these, you know, we have all these guys from the special mission units, like the classified units of special ops that help run our charity or come on po- this podcast and stuff. And those guys really live this, like, they call it being a quiet professional. Mm-hmm. And it's like this common, it's like this really unique combination of confidence and humility that I, I find fascinating. And I feel like you did that. And I, I just wonder if you have anything to say about this balance of like enough confidence to be interested in the truth and believe you'll be able to become a better version of yourself if it's not the answer you wanted or something like that. Yeah, great question. So Howard Schultz one time said that the, the currency of leadership is transparency. And someone asked me one time, how did you lead with hope, okay, in this downturn? And I said, I didn't. And they said, well, what do you mean you didn't? I said, well, I, I guess I, let me, let me back up and say that I think I led with some level of hope. But the fact of the matter is I, I get in front of my employees and I would say, you know what? I don't know if we're going to make it. I think we are. I mean, I really do. And by the way, we are working our butts off to make it happen. And so I just hope that you trust. But And, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm actually very confident in the direction we're taking, okay? But I can't tell you for sure if we're going to make it because I just don't know. This is for maybe the first six months. Well, there were some people in the organization that didn't like that. You know, they, they really wanted me to lead with complete hope, you know, sort of like, you know, I guess like a general would be in, a, in, a, in an army, you know, and, and on the battlefield. And and I, and I would say, you know, well, don't, don't confuse my lack, you know, don't think of it as a lack of hope, but just think of it as brutal honesty with my employee base and transparency. And I actually think that the more transparent and honest that I am, I, I actually think we'll get better results. It's just my, my, my way of thinking, because I, I think people deep down inside, if I would have gotten up and I would have raised the flag and I said, you know, let follow me. I'm not really sure how many takers I would have gotten because it was, the odds look pretty bad. You know, I'd rather be transparent and just tell people what's on my, you know, on my heart. But I, I'm also going to tell them that I'm working my butt off to, to make this thing happen. And I hope you all are too. And I, I believe we can, but we need to continue the fight. You know what I'm saying? There's just a different, it's just a different way of saying it. That was what was on my heart. And I don't think it was a bad thing to be that way. And I think that if anything, that level of transparency was perhaps raw in some people's mind, but, but they, you know, they couldn't doubt what I had to say and they knew it was brutally honest. Well, I love it. And I, I guess I just want to dig a little further into like, if the others of us want to follow your example and we want to like build habits and routines of the three H's here. I'm interested more what this looks like. Like when you're giving yourself a rating, is it right after a meeting? Do you take time to journal quietly at home? Is it different times? Like logistically, what does that look like? That's a great question. So I did actually journal. People ask me that all the time. Did, did you journal? I did actually journal, but I didn't journal as much as I would like. And I didn't journal as much about the things that I could have done better as much as the deals that we had to get done and, and, and ways that we could navigate through getting the deals done that we had to get done without 
filing for bankruptcy. And so I would, I journaled a lot about that. And when I first started writing the book, I went back and I thought, oh my gosh, I got every detail down and every deal that we did during that time. I will tell you that I'm a very, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. And so my self-reflection occurs every morning between the hours of back then 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning, today between five and six in the morning. I, I, I before I read any email, or before I do anything other than taking a shower, I'll sit there and quiet for at least a half an hour and just personally reflect in a spiritual way. And even if you're not a spiritual person, I would, I think that that's really, uh, hopefully you'll find good advice because it happens early. And I don't, I'm not presupposing that you want to get up at five in the morning, but whatever your time is to get up, do it before you get too involved in your world. Because ideas flow into your mind early, at least they do, they did for me, and and before anything clutters my mind. And so that's where I found the most personal reflection. And what I like to do is 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 this. I like to look backward and forward. So I look backward one day, and, and I still do this today. I say, um, okay, what happened yesterday? And how could I have handled anything different? Did I handle it the right way or not? Who do I need to call? Who do I need to send an email to, by the way, that, that touched me? Um, like my email back to you this morning. And then, and, then, and then the second part of it is look out for the day and say, what's my schedule look like? And how do I um, need to you know, follow up with people? How do I need to treat people today and the like? And I think if you're aware of your past and your present in doing that, and you spend time before your mind gets too cluttered, uh, I think self-reflection can, could be very, very powerful. Well, that's great. I think for, for me, it's helpful to, to get that extra little bit of like, physically logistically what did that look like you know and and whether i or anybody else copies you copies you exactly there's like a a tone and an aspect of that that i think as you're talking there i'm sitting there interpreting what could that look like for me what do i think fits into my day of getting getting kids up and reading some scriptures and getting them off on the bus to school and and you know where where would something like that fit for me but I'm interested in the idea of examples. You talked about John Mack, anybody else that you talked about your father, anybody else that you feel like really set the example for you of, of how to lead like this and how to be like this that, that you look up to? Well, I, I talked about my dad. I talked about the, my first leader at Trammell Crow Company too. He, he, he made a, a, a huge difference. You know, I, I would just say this might not hit your time frame right, but when I started writing the book, there was, you know, I talked about Howard, Howard Schultz. And I think he's one of the most interesting leaders that, that I've, at least I've, I've read, you know, stuff about and I read a few things. So he's all about servant leadership, Howard Schultz. And he wrote an op-ed out of the New York, that showed up in the New York Times. Remember, you might recall four years ago, he was going to run for president or, or he was rumored to be running for president. A lot of people were pushing him. And I think he did, he did this op-ed, which was one of the most unique human um, stories. He said he looked at he he saw a picture of Pope Francis who was kneeling and washing the feet of prisoners in Rome, and a couple of the prisoners were Muslim prisoners as well. And he goes on to speak about how America need needed a servant leader for president. He believed how servant leadership needs to reemerge, and he wasn't pointing his finger at any leader at the time. Okay, 
but he said that, that America deserves a president humble enough to see leadership not as an entitlement, but as a privilege. And uh, I think that's really refreshing in this world of self-absorption. And I was on a call a couple of weeks ago with Ed Bastian, who is the CEO of Delta, Delta Airlines. And I don't know how much you've heard of Ed, but but I, I got to tell you, you know, when, when you're the CEO of a company whose revenues go down by 95% in one month, you know, like they did in, in, in the month of March, you know, I, I listen to this guy, right? Because it reminds me of what we went through in 2008. And Ed Bastian said, and I wrote these, these, these quotes down. He said, this is a, it's a blessing, not a burden today to be a leader. He said, it's an amazing time and an amazing chapter in our lives. He said, what an honor and privilege it is to be managing at a time like this. I think we need more leaders like that today. I think we got to get out of this. I don't know if we ever will, but I'd like to see us move away from this meme culture that I think in some respects is created through social media and in other respects is just sign of the times. Part of it is all the access that we have to information. I write about that in the book and, and, and the acceleration of information and how much we have at our fingertips. And I think we become a little bit more know-it-all than we really are. We become judgmental, you know? And so I look at leaders like Howard Schultz talking about servant leadership. I talk about Ed Bastian who talks about it being a privilege. And, and seeing leadership through their eyes um, today, I think attitude matters. I really do. And I think putting others before yourself really, really matters. And so these are some modern day leaders that I really respect. I read, um, I don't know if you ever read Joe Torrey's book, but, you know, he's, he was a manager of the New York Yankees. And, you know, I mean, think about, you know, working for the, the Steinbrenner, the boss that he worked for. And, but, you know, he, he talks about the importance of honesty. He said, you know, I never said anything to the media, never said anything to the media that I didn't tell my, my, all my players first, you know? And so I think about, you know, leaders like that. And then last but not least, I think about a leader like Nelson Mandela. I mean, this guy really, you know, if you read about him, he was really a radical. I mean, total radical. Now he grew up with apartheid, you know, and, and he was, he was a black. And, and so he's radical and he's jailed for 27 years. And, you know, when he got out, and he eventually became president of South Africa, he was all about reconciliation. Matter of fact, some of his black cohorts were upset at him because he, he put the olive branch out to the, the whites who they hated over all these years and who they were radicalized. But at the end of the day, he was about reconciliation and, you know, and, and ultimately changed the face of apartheid as a result of it. So I think about leaders that are servant leaders, I think about leaders that are transparent leaders. I think about leaders have, who have great attitudes, who put them uh, put others before themselves, who are brutally honest with their people. I think about leaders that are humble, uh, like Nelson Mandela, and create reconciliation. Those are leaders that mean a lot to me. I love that. You know, one of one of my heroes is a guy. He was a client of of mine when I was at a working on the consulting side of things. Uh, for a great firm called the Arbinger Institute. He was the bureau. He was the head of the Bureau of Public Debt. So at the time, okay. he was in charge of like $16 trillion of U.S. debt, right? He's a, <laughs> I, I didn't pick that number. I'm just in charge. <laughs> of care. But when he got put in charge, he worked incredibly hard to push all of the to-dos to, to like give responsibility to all these people instead of him going to a million meetings so that he would have the time to take care of people. And he was very, very intentional on what he did with his time. And a lot of it was out spending time with these people. And, yeah. you know, especially in my experience in government and military, there's even extra pressure to be seen as busy. 
And your book reminded me more, this guy's name is Van Zach. He's my hero. Your book reminded me more of him than any other book because I think about my own leadership struggles and my own insecurities about being seen as incompetent or underperforming or all these things that, that you write. And Van just wanted to take care of people and make sure they had what they needed to get the job done. And he had faith in them and he provided the training so he could have the faith in them. And it just be like, it just, it wasn't all about him. In fact, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, whatever that one is, the, the people who tax all that, they hired us to come in and teach and said, well, we just want whatever Van's doing. So whatever that is, just come do that, you know? And so I, I well think, so my question for you though is, for those of us who want to be more like, like what you're teaching about in the book, I would love to hear any more like real examples of like, you know, you, you hear that number of like a market cap of 500 million and grown it to 20 on the way to a merger to get it to 50 billion, right? A hundred, a hundred times change in market cap in, in four years. I'm interested in any stories of how the three H's played into that for you. Oh boy. Um, I'm sure there's tons of them, but maybe just one that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is really a minor story. It's, it's actually quite minor. But, but, you know, you asked me off the top of my head, so it's okay. You know, when, when, when I told you about the coach telling me about empathy, you know, your empathy scores need to be better. So, okay, so I, I traveled all throughout the world. And so my average year was 250 to 300,000 miles in an airplane. So generally, I traveled four out of five days, which really meant 80% of the time. And some weeks I was gone the whole week. And, you know, when you come back into the office, it's easy to see how you're running around like a chicken, like your head cut off with your head cut off. Right. And, uh, but it's also easy to see how that could be misconstrued by people as you not wanting to spend time with them. And it's also easy to see how some people could interpret that as, you know, well, we haven't seen Walt in weeks, you know, he's just up there in that ivory tower, (laughs) you know? And so you have to combat that. And so I remember thinking, okay, how do I do that? What are the little things? And I actually think that leadership is, is all about the little things. It's not necessarily about the big things. The little things all add up. And so I started to, okay, we had a cafeteria downstairs. And, you know, normally I would eat with, because I hadn't seen my direct reports in weeks or, you know, and I'd, I'd take my CFO to lunch, maybe in the cafeteria, or I'd take my general counsel to lunch or head of HR, you know, that kind of thing. And everybody would see, oh, there's Walt over there with a CFO, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I started thinking, no, that's, that's the wrong impression. I probably should start meeting with my CFO on Saturdays when no one's around the office. So I started going downstairs in the cafeteria, speaking of, you know, humanness. And whoever was the person in front of me, I would tap on the shoulder and I'd say, this is your lucky day. I got lunch. Let's sit down and talk. It might be Joe in accounting, you know, it might be Mary in IT. And, you know, I didn't know all the people in our office. I knew some of them, but I mean, there were hundreds of people in in our corporate offices. And it was my opportunity to ask them about their families, husbands, their kids. And a lot of times I didn't even talk about Prologis, just ask them about them. And there were two things that happened. One, directly from their perspective, they couldn't believe the CEO was taking them to lunch and asking them stuff. And the other thing was don't underestimate everybody else watching in the cafeteria. Everybody's watching the CFO with Marion, I mean, the chief CEO with Marion Accounting. Like, how does she know him? And, but when you do that over the course of years, then people start, they start looking around the back, like, uh-oh, is Walt going to be tapping me on the, on the shoulder today, you know? But that's how, you, you know, another thing is we used to have this cookout every year 
where we would bring in, we'd bring in an organization to cook hot dogs and hamburgers for us. And we'd all go outside. This was in the summertime. It'd be like a summer party on a Wednesday afternoon and everybody would wear shorts and they would love that. And, you know, and, you know, so one year I said, the first year we did it when I was there, I said, no, 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 we're not going to hire all these people to come in. We're going to have the senior management team. We're going to serve hot dogs and we're going to serve hamburgers and we're going to be the last to eat. Okay. And then we're going to go around and we're going to ask people, did, are you, are you full before we eat? And by the way, we're then, and we're cleaning up, we're picking up, you know, you don't have to throw anything away. That's what I'm talking about, right? You know, that's how you, you show the human side of you. And, and, you know, there's story after story about that. There's a, there's a Christmas party where my, where my general counsel asked me to dance with him on the floor and do to Havad Nagila. And, and, and all the people are watching us do these Russian dances and just making fun of us, you know, falling on the, on the floor. But that's what you want them to see. You want them to see the personal side, right? Uh, they, you want them to see you sweating and your knees are hurting and, and, you know, they're cracking up at you. You know, that's how you're human, you know? It's not just about the way you treat them either. It's about, it's about your willingness to be just like them. You know, when you think about business as a team sport, and how it's going to take everybody to, you know, to 100, to 100 times the market cap of a company. It's probably going to take everybody on the team, right? It's funny. Those are little things. But I can, as you're talking, I can just see how, like, if it wasn't like a one-time PR stunt, if this is like the way things are done around here, you just yeah. start putting bricks on this wall. And pretty soon you got a pretty good wall around your castle here, you know, of like people who are loyal to the business, people who aren't just watching the clock at, you know, at the end of the day on Friday and, or, or skipping out and claiming they were there, you know, and like, like yeah. that, getting them to bring their, you know, don't just bring their body to work, bring their brain and their heart to work, you know? Yeah. And, and I think I would actually, I'd actually turn that around. I don't know if you ever listened to Pink Floyd. This is way back in my years, but Pink Floyd used to say another brick in the wall, which is, you know, you keep putting the wall up and, and you're, and you're building a dividing line between you and everybody else. I like to think every one of those things actually tore down another brick. Sure. And, sure. And, tear, and, tear down and, the barriers. Yeah, and level level the playing field so we could all see each other and the, for the way that we all were, you know. And people are very prideful to work for companies where they can relate to the management team and they and they get you know the things that they did. And the other thing, Jess, is that we were incredibly charitable as an organization, incredibly charitable. And and we and we you know we told everybody that look, you know, you're working a lot of hours and you've got here and you've got your family. And there's, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of time for you to give back in this world. And we get that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to support you. We are going to give you time off. And we are going to put money behind you in, in your charitable contributions. And, and so, but we do want you to work X number of hours at, in, in a charitable organization that you would have worked here. Okay. And that is how we're going to give back. And we made it almost, I mean, you can't make it mandatory, but you can make it such that 80 or 90% of the people feel really compelled to take you up on it, you know? And I think that went a long way to showing that we had a heart as well for not just the organization, turning around the organization, but our community. That's important. That's really, really, and I think it's even more important today. I think the, you know, the next generation of leaders who are now in the 20s and 30s and, you know, early 40s, I think they, they think a lot more like that than, than, you know, my predecessors did and even some people that do in my generation. 
and, and they want to work for a company. They're, pride, they're prideful to work for a company that really puts an emphasis on that, you know, and we did. Well, and I love that instead of just telling people they should do that, you guys set the example on it, right? We had to. You had to. You, you've got to lead as, as a leader. You can't tell somebody to do something if you're not willing to do it yourself. Yeah. Well, this has been such a fun interview for me. What, what would be something fun to end with? What, do you, what, do you wanna, what haven't we covered that we should cover to end here? Well, I just like to encourage everybody. I mean, we're in a tough time. We're, we're almost in the next, we're not almost, we are in the next crisis, but it's a different crisis. You know, the financial crisis of 2008 was, felt much more financial, financially driven. This crisis is more social as well as financial. But I mean, you know, you're, you're on Zoom calls and you hear babies crying in the background, you hear dogs barking in the background. You realize that we have never, ever, to my knowledge, mixed work and home life the way that we are today. And man, I'll tell you what, that is disconcerting to a number of people. I mean, it really is hard. It's tough to lead. I think we got to give people a break right now. I mean, it really does fit into the things that I talk about, but even more so. I think we got to manage with a heart today. I think we, we can't expect people to come to us. We need to be asking people, how are, you, how are you doing? And I mean, how really are you doing? And can I help? I think, I think it puts a real emphasis on you know, trusting because people aren't there day to day working side by side. They have to trust that other people are getting, getting the job done. And so it's really hard to micromanage today. I think it really puts an emphasis on communication and staying in touch with your people. And unfortunately, in some respects, if you have enough money as a company, I think you should invest in, in some hard-nosed consulting and, and, and perhaps, you know, uh, allowing people to see somebody outside the company to, you know, to mental health and issues like that are very, very important. And, and, and maybe they need to seek, you know, seek outside help. And so I'm, I'm on the board of directors of somebody that, a company that today is truly trying to seek out, do they have people that have those issues and how can they help them with outside help, you know? And so I think we have to be flexible. We have to be empathetic today in this market and realize that we are going through a crisis. It's a lot different than any crisis we've ever gone through. And, but that said, I think you should remember, you know, kind of what Ed Bastin said and at Delta Airlines, and that is that it's a, it really is a privilege. And, and you'll look back on this time as a crucible and seminal moment in your career. And, and, and think, of it, think, of it, think of it as a blessing to lead right now. And, you know, don't shy away from it. Go, you know, hit it, hit it head on. That's great. Well, thanks again for spending all this time with us. Ah, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I, I really, I wish you all the best. I wish your listeners all the best. I hope people have gotten something out of this and, and I'm just excited to be here, Jess. So thanks.